welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 81 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I am your host for this episode. Now, last week's episode was all about Windrush Day um, and questioning what exactly we were celebrating in the midst of the lives that the so-called Windrush generation led um, and the scandal that kind of preceded them and like, you know, led to the situation whereby people were being deported back to countries that they probably had left um, as children, as babies, or had never even been to. Now, today's episode is kind of a follow-on, and I didn't intend to make this episode um, when I kind of sat down to, to think about this week's planning and everything, but there were so many things that were said during that kind of week of Windrush celebrations, and I've said that in inverted air commas, you obviously can't see my hands, but they were there, um, and there were just so many different things being spoken about that obviously I wouldn't have put in the episode because I recorded the episode for Monday, and then Windrush Day was on Wednesday, but I kind of wanted to think about and speak about some of the things that were being said, and primarily focus on this statue that's been unveiled now statues are they've been a very um what's the word controversial topic in the last few years um in this country especially when we're thinking about statues being pulled down we don't often speak so much about them being put up because well there's not that many statues of black people in this country or representing black people um or monuments to them to honor or or you know memorialize their lives but statue went up at Waterloo Station um, to honour the Windrush generation, the lies and the legacy and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I just want to start then this podcast with three stories um, of people who were part of that Windrush generation. Um, and as I read those stories out, I just want you to think about what this statue is doing for their lives Leighton Joseph Robinson, age 60. Robinson's children took him to Jamaica for his 50th birthday, his first visit since arriving in Britain, age 6. But on his return, he was told he was not allowed back into the UK because he had no visa. He was stuck in Jamaica for 21 months until a solicitor helped him. On his return, he was told he owed £4,500 for unpaid rent and council tax. He became homeless. Bevis Smith, 64. Smith arrived in London in 1972, aged 16. More than 40 years later, he he was admitted to hospital with a brain aneurysm, where staff told him he may have to cover the £5,000 bill. While there, he lost his home because of his illegal residency status, and he was ineligible for a bed in a state-funded homeless hostel, so he was discharged to the streets. Eventually, a bed was found for him, and he spent years trying to prove his residency. Until, in January 2018, the Home Office confirmed he had indefinite leave to remain. He is still waiting for compensation. Jocelyn John, aged 58. In November 2016, John agreed to a voluntary removal to Grenada, the country she had left, aged four, 53 years earlier. The former Ritz chambermaid, was wrongly classified as living in the UK illegally in 2009. She lost a job 
and spent years sleeping on relative sofas and floors, despite 75 pages of evidence proving a lifetime spent here. The Home Office said she faced detention unless she left the UK, so eventually she agreed to self-deport. Now, those stories were recorded in 2020 by The Guardian, alongside 47 other stories of people that had faced um, deportation or been asked to self-deport or been detained or been told that they were in the UK illegally and had to prove they had the right to be here. Those were only a handful of the cases that took place. The Windrush scandal didn't just affect a couple of hundred people. It was estimated that 50,000 people would have been impacted by this scandal and by the hostile immigration policy combined with the destroying of their papers. 50,000. So far, it's been said around 15,000 have come forward um, to make a claim. We heard three stories. The Guardian recorded 50. There are other stories out there. This isn't something that just impacted a handful of people because every single one of those people that was impacted had family, had friends, had employers, had employees maybe. And I just wonder why it was felt that a statue was the right thing to do to commemorate the lives of this generation of people when so many of said generation are suffering at the hands of the very government that put a statue in place. I mentioned one of the people had not yet received compensation. That might have changed. This was two years ago. However, a ridiculously small amount of people have received adequate compensation that they are happy and satisfied with. It is scary to me to think that something so sinister which leaked reports have said is part of a 30-year-long span to reduce the number of black and brown immigrants in this country, could be glossed over with a statue. And at the time when I heard the statue um, was being unveiled, I didn't know about it, I don't don't really know I've been, um, until literally the day I, I was on BBC Radio London, I was on Eddie Nestor's show, um, and we were talking about the Windrush generation, scandal, everything. And my feelings were so, like... I was kind of ambivalent towards this whole day. And I said that in the last episode. Because I was like, well, what are we celebrating? Would we even know had there not been a scandal about these people? And Eddie kind of agreed. He said he felt the same way. Um, And then the broadcast carried on after I was off air. It carried on to the unveiling of this statue um, at Waterloo Station. And, you know, the Duchess and Duke of... Cambridge um William and Kate were there for the unveiling and he made a speech and it just felt so wrong listening there was not a part of me that was like oh my gosh this is amazing this is this was so necessary there was just a sadness because it just felt so ridiculous and superficial that it would be a statue like that would be used to not silence this generation but to 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 remember it, I, I can't see myself looking past that statue and kind of feeling any kind of positive emotions. 
knowing just how much people are still suffering financially, mentally, spiritually, physically at the hands of the hostile policy and at the hands of the Home Office and this government, this government that is literally creating such chaos in the lives of so many people to then turn around and throw a statue at the problem. It just seems ridiculous. Now, it was Gus John's open letter that sparked some of these stronger thoughts in my mind. And we're going to... I'm going to read out some of that in a bit because it's really important. But just to, you know, support my fury and frustration, um, I thought I'd give some statistics um, and just kind of the situation with this scandal because, you know, this it's happened now. You know, people were wrongly deported, people were targeted, people had their lives completely tossed and turned upside down and ruined in so many different ways. Um, but that's happened. And, you know, moving forwards, quick action and appropriate action is the only way to make the situation marginally better. And that would be with the compensation scheme. So the Home Office, you know, decided they were going to do this compensation scheme. But what they didn't do was give it to, like, an NGO or an independent body to take it on, as in to handle the compensation scheme. The Home Office are doing it themselves. There's a lawyer called Jacqueline McKenzie who basically said... It's like doing your homework and marking it yourself. And that's exactly what is happening here. And in an interview she did with Sky News, she's one of the um, lawyers that's worked a lot in the kind of grassroots organising with people that have, um, you know, faced deportation and, and been a victim of this scandal. And she has been the lawyer to take people through the process because it's not a simple process. It's not just a quick form where you can say, oh yeah, um, you know, I was told I was it shouldn't be here, I lost my job. You've got to like properly chart out, you know, the years. And this went on for years for some people, even more than year, 10, like over 10, 15 years of them losing their job. So then you have to do la- loss of earnings, pension contributions, you know, someone has to do all that maths. It's obviously not that difficult, but um, adding all that up, things like healthcare, you know, if you had to pay for that in the meantime, if you were um forced to pay rent or you were kicked out of your home because you couldn't prove that you should be here legally and obviously landlords can only take or should only take people that um are they have the right to be in the country and if you're being told you don't have the right to be in the country they can't legally rent to you um so all of these kind of loss of earnings and then bear in mind a lot of them have already spent years proving they had the right to be here by finding like evidence of them in school working jobs paying taxes for like 50 60 years of their lives so you know this is a process that needs lawyers to take people through it it needs a lot of support and a lot of the people that are going through this are I would say if you came over as a child in the 50s 60s um, as late as the early 70s then you're going to be 50 60 70 even older now um so you know, it's not exactly necessarily people that might be tech savvy or um, have access to like computers and this and that, especially if they've, you know, been put out of their homes and whatever else. Um, So it needed people to help them. And rather than the Home Office actually giving this to an independent like body or an independent group or organisation to deal with, they're doing it themselves. Um, And I, I think the 
idea that I'm getting from research is that it's taking a lot longer than it should. Now, in 2022, right now, this year, 23 people have died without receiving compensation um, for what they went through. Um, the wait for, like, reparations, compensation is ridiculous. Apparently, 7% of people have been helped over the four years that the compensation scheme was um, kind of introduced. As I said, the Home Office estimated around 15,000 were due compensation from an original 50,000 um, who should have apparently come forward to make a claim at one point. Um, however, um, Windrush Justice Clinic um, and Justice, um, another organisation, have kind of suggested that this like lack of government-funded legal advice is a barrier. So people that do want advice and have do feel like they are owed compensation have to go to a lawyer, a private lawyer, or hopefully some of the kind of grassroots organisations that are doing this work. There was no like government-funded legal advice for this. Um, another thing that's made the whole process more difficult is that in recent times, I think December 2021, the Home Office abandoned its free phone arrangement for overseas Windrush victims. Now, imagine if you've been deported and you need help from the country you've been deported to. Um, you They no longer have like a free phone service, so you would need to make that international call off your own back. Um, they take hours. I'm sure you can imagine being on hold for the Home Office um, and the costs are extortionate. Um the like how is a victim of this scandal supposed to navigate that abroad in a country they really haven't been to since they were like five years old um and you know financing that as well out from outside of the country some people got to fight this from inside of britain which i don't know if that's even a good thing but a lot of people were stranded um or stuck or homeless in countries that are allegedly their homes and that's where they should have been living um so it's more than just, you know, oh, they're being really slow with these repayments, their compensation. There's so much more to it. There are so many little elements of it that have made it so difficult for people to even start the process of going to claim compensation or to even find out if they can, because you make a claim and some people's would not even be accepted for a variety of reasons. So with all that being said, it just doesn't make sense to me or doesn't feel right, should we say, that this monument is being created when so much more time and energy needs to be spent into compensating the people that were um, labelled and branded as illegal immigrants and, you know, were told they don't have the right to be in this country. As well as, and we haven't even got onto, the insurmountable racism that was faced by so many of those people that came within those years, um, this Windrush generation, like, what they had to suffer at the hands of the state, at the hands of other British people, realistically, like, deserves compensation in itself, let's be honest. So the fact that that is barely being acknowledged with this monument, um, and just to briefly speak on the monument, it's, I think, a million pounds of government funding, which, you know, I'd, personally, I think a million pounds could go a little further and better. In the current climate of the UK, in this cost of living crisis energy crisis petrol price crisis food price crisis everything crisis you know i don't see the point of things like this but that's my personal opinion i think and i do believe there is you know there's an importance to statues and monuments and that kind of thing but is now the time maybe not it's kind of like that jubilee that happened that costs like how many millions it's like could Britain spend money better yes will it no but 
the monument. It was um, commissioned um, by um, the, the UK government um, and it was to, and I quote, pay tribute to the dreams, ambition, courage and resilience of the Windrush pioneers who arrived in Britain after the Second World War and the generations that followed over the years. So technically this means this monument is for me because I am in the generations that follow. This, I don't, I, as I said, I don't think I want it. Um, it it doesn't really, I don't personally see, should I say, how this serves to pay tribute to the dreams, ambition, courage and resilience. Because I think there would be so many other things that could have been done that would hold more value and significance and really, you know, atone for the lives that these people were forced to live in this country because of not only racism and all that stuff but because of the long history of colonization of britain going to these islands dragging kidnapping and literally dragging people from africa to the caribbean and then decimating their countries by stripping them of natural resources you know a literally lengthy histories of exploitation and then you wonder why we get to like world war ii post-war era and people from the Caribbean feel they have to come to Britain because there are no opportunities in their homelands. Why is that? I wonder why. Colonisation. So for the Queen and the Home Office and all these people to be like, here's this amazing little statue, um, this monument to kind of talk about all you did and your courage and your resilience, it's like, what about the, like, hundreds of years of, like, colonisation and exploitation and enslavement? What about all of that? You know, how can you... You, like... They're skipping out the first, you know, hundred hundreds of years in the story of Britain's link with the Caribbean. It's like it just began in 1948 with the Windrush. Well, no, it didn't. There is so much backstory to it, which we've, you know, we've talked about in a variety of episodes on this podcast. It just doesn't make sense for them to just gloss over all the pain, all the anguish, all the evil to get to this monument. Now, the monument itself, three figures, a man, a woman and a child dressed in their, and I quote, Sunday best. Um, and they're climbing this mountain of suitcases hand in hand. And from the Home Office website, the government website, this is to demonstrate the inseparable bond of the Windrush pioneers and their descendants and the aspirations of their generation. And whilst the one phrase I will agree with is aspirations of their generation, because I do think that kind of epitomises those group of people that left their homes consciously, um, you know, to try for a better opportunity because there were not opportunities where they came from because their country had been decimated um you know those aspirations i resonate with that line but um i i find it interesting that they've got this very well to do in terms of you know the way they're dressed family climbing this mountain of suitcases um it doesn't speak on much more than them arriving here dressed smartly with suitcases you know it doesn't speak on the racism it doesn't speak on the brutality it doesn't really even speak on maybe what they did um but i'm not criticizing the, the monument you know the sentiment behind it doesn't make sense to me um but you know i am happy to say that at least a jamaican artist was commissioned basil watson um he was commissioned to do this work and it would mean he would you know be paid for this work um, which is nice to see that they've actually used um, an artist from the Caribbean who actually has a link um, 
heritage wise and you know his his own personal life story with this um topic and i think that is a good thing to come out of this um shall we say and another response i wanted to think about today was that of gus john now gus john um is a grenadian born award-winning writer um lecturer researcher professor gus john should i say um education campaigner consultant um he moved to the uk in 1964 and he's just done he's done so much in education policy management international development and you know that's just to reel off the list of his like you know things in his biography um but i've always known him as an education campaigner um across the uk not just in london um but in you know some of the big cities in the uk um and so he was invited to the unveiling at waterloo station and he actually turned down his invitation and wrote an open letter to explain why and I think Gus John is probably, and it's something I saw on Twitter as well, he's one of the the last of a really strong generation um, of anti-racist people that walk the walk as well as talking the talk. Like, you know, he doesn't just kind of smile and nod in the face of... Um, the British pomp and circumstance, he says no, he puts his foot down, he wasn't there, you know, he didn't just go and then complain afterwards, he he made it known he was not going there, and he writes open letters regularly, yeah, just type in Gus John open letter, um, and you will see so many different topics he's written about, um, and I love an open letter, I, I wish people would utilise them more, they're just like, it's kind of like, I'm going to eloquently tell you everything you've done wrong, or everything I disliked about the thing you did, and I just, yeah, I really enjoy an open letter. Um, and this one was particularly excellent because he just, I didn't think this something like this would come out of that day because it just seems so like forcefully celebratory. Like everyone was like, yay, Windrush Day. And then this came out, um, I think in the kind of afternoon as the um, statue was unveiled and that kind of thing. And I read it and I was like, this is exactly how I was feeling. Thank you, sir, Gus John. Thank you, Professor Gus John. So I'm going to take some chunks out of it, break some quotes down um, and just kind of let you know what he was thinking and feeling about this monument. And before I do that, I just want to add that um, in true like British media fashion, when this was like reported on the open letter, the quotes that were taken from here were so like, I don't know, um, what should we say, like palatable. He went in and I didn't see any of the quotes that really went in in these newspaper reports and these, um, you know, people summarising it on Twitter. He said, like, some nice little catchy ones that got tweeted because, you know, that's what Twitter is all about. But he said some really important things that were quite long in to be quoted. So I'm going to read them out because it's a podcast and we've got time. Um, but, yeah, if you've read, say you've read an article about it, but you haven't actually read the open letter, go and read the open letter. It's like quite long, but it is really, really worth it. But I'm going to break down the most important points, I think, um, with you now. So, first of all, my first favourite first thing he said, first favourite thing he said, um, was, and I quote, Significantly, this monument is being unveiled in the same month that Her Imperial Majesty Queen Elizabeth II celebrates 70 years as British monarch. During those 70 years, the British state has perpetuated a culture of racism that has violated the human rights of black Commonwealth and of British-born and naturalised citizens, marring their lives and killing thousands of them, directly through brutalisation, 
while in the custody of the state and indirectly through the impact of racism on their life chances and their health and well-being. And this speaks about so many different things, you know, the mm, jubilee celebrations. The Queen's been on the throne for 70 years. Fantastic. So, you know, what about all the things that have happened, all the atrocities that have been committed? Um, you know, genocides, like actual genocides have occurred. Um, let alone, as he says, you know, the direct brutalisation at the hands of the state, but also the impact of racism that kills. When we think about COVID, you know, in the last two years alone, we think about the impacts of racism on society, on um, key workers that were disproportionately black um, and of ethnic minorities. Um, we think about the people now that are probably suffering most when we think about the cost of living rises and the crisis and all that stuff. You know, again, disproportionately affecting black people. Now, not to say that it's not affecting other people as well. This cost of living crisis is a crisis that, you know, is coming for all people that cannot afford things. Um, so not just to do that, but whenever the kind of poorest people in society are here, it's disproportionately impacting black people. Um, and that has to be understood and thought about in a situation like this, because, you know, if you're Caribbean in this country, then you're most likely a descendant of the Windrush generation. And this monument was meant to be for us. But here we are suffering at the hands of X, Y and Z. So there's that. Um, he also goes on to say, just one week after I received your invitation, The Guardian ran a story of a report on the Windrush scandal, which the Home Office is said to be refusing to release and which argued, among other damning findings, that the scandal was a culmination of 30 years of racist immigration laws. So, kind of what we were saying earlier in regards to the Home Office having a report that's been done, um, and the Guardian having leaked, a part of that report leaked to them, and then they, you know, wrote their report on it, their articles on it. Um, and it says that this um, report that's been done is not being released because the findings are so damning. 30 years of racist immigration laws, which is nothing new to us here, as we know. Um, but this is all happening at the same time. And it's like you unveiling this monument. It's like just trying to wipe away everything that's happened as if it doesn't matter. It matters. It's still impacting people. You know, people are still suffering at the hands of all of these problems. Another thing Gus John says is um, that, and I quote, the Windrush Commemoration Committee projects the monument as an ambitious public artwork that stands as a testament to the contribution of Caribbean pioneers in communities across the United Kingdom. They claim it will create a permanent place of reflection and inspiration and be a visible statement of our shared history and heritage. And he goes on to say, but the Windrush narrative itself erases the shared history and heritage and refers lazily to the Windrush generation as if they had no past and no experience with Britain before arriving in Britain. It also presents those who came in 1948 and after as pioneers who clocked up notable accomplishments in a free and open society in which they enjoyed equal opportunities for their considerable talents to flourish, which we know is just not the case. Um, there's so many people, so many stories of so many people that came over with a trade or a job or a dream and they weren't able to do it because black people weren't allowed to do that job or black people weren't a fit for that job. Um, and they went into very low-skilled and unskilled work, um, which wasn't what they came over to do, especially as so many of them had fought in World War II prior and had racked up such serious skills. Like, some of them were fighting, you know, the Germans in RAF planes. They were pilots. They had so much training in so many specific arenas 
teachers came over having trained in teach training college, nurses having already trained, you know, doctors, and they weren't able to practice what they had come to do because of racism. Um, this idea that also it represents communities across the United Kingdom. Now, this is my, me speaking and not Gus John. Um, I don't like, and I'm probably a cause of this problem, but I really don't like how London-centric any kind of black history in this country is. Why did that statue have to go in Waterloo Station? I think Gus John and others have said it should have gone in in Brixton, in Windrush Square, which is where the Black Cultural Archives are, and there's already a monument there to um, Caribbean service men and women that fought in the both the world wars, and it's beautiful. And that area is really a hub, and it was a, such a strong community of Caribbean people that arrived um, in those years. Waterloo Station, it's kind of like they the, the the rationale should i say behind it is that you know a lot of them pass through waterloo station and there are some beautiful photos of people arriving into waterloo station and it was you know one of the first points a lot of people went to but not everybody went through waterloo station not everybody went through brixton either but brixton already being something that you know the caribbean people and black the black black communities there kind of have have some ownership of that that being the archives it would have made maybe to me anyway into Gus John um more sense for it to be there um it feels strange it being in Waterloo um I don't ever go to Waterloo I've never needed to be there um my travel routes don't really permit me that side but I wonder why Birmingham Leeds Liverpool York you know and why a different city didn't get a statue if it was part of the fund for leveling up and leveling up is this conservative government's idea of you know leveling up some parts of England outside of London, or so I thought. But yet again, it's London that gets this statue. Um, and for all the Londoners listening, and there are a lot of you, I'm sorry, but you know it is is true. And I think a plaque went up in Paddington Station as well on the same day, and also a kind of um, monument in Hackney. Um, which has links to the Windrush um, generation and, and that kind of narrative um, from an artist who has actually put up a lot of monuments in London. Um, and he's probably a Londoner, which makes sense. And I'm not criticising that per se. Just food for thought, you know. What about the rest of the country? Um, secondly, in Gus John's kind of the point he just made that I read out was that the Windrush narrative um, itself erases a shared history. Um, and it's something I think I need to read up more on because um, I think I probably lazily refer to the Windrush generation a lot as well. Um, but I think he's essentially referring to this idea that it suggests that there was no link to Britain before the Windrush when we know, and as I said, there's hundreds of years of, of history, of exploitation, of colonialism. Um, and it suggests that those people that came, you know, had this, like, free reign and were able to come and um, clock up, as he says, notable accomplishments in a free and open society, which we know they weren't able to do. Um, it was a struggle. It was such a struggle. And I'm not saying everything to do with black people and black history has to represent struggle, but there's been so many struggles. To be an accurate representation, you've got to reference, you know, that. And even if it wasn't referenced necessarily in the monument and in the artwork... None of the like rhetoric that's come out from this, none of the statements made by any of the notable people that were there reference it in, I think, a way that I would I would think is, is adequate and satisfying. 
Um, it's just, it just seems very tokenistic. It is very tokenistic. Um, and I'll leave you with the final quote from, from Gus John, where he says, If that monument celebrates the life's contribution and legacy of those who came to the UK from the Caribbean, it is surely also a monument to the brutality of the British state in deporting undocumented Windrush folk who have lived all their lives in this country but were negligent in hanging on to their iconic blue British colonial passport and not regularising um, their British nationality. And he goes on to say, But the state is one which has an industrial prison complex where descendants of the Windrush generation are more populous than any other section of the population, where we are overrepresented in most manifestations of social malaise and grossly underrepresented in positions of influence, decision-making and the exercise of social and economic power in government as in pretty much every societal institution. Needless to say, it would be utterly perverse and mindless for anyone to point to Badnock, Quarting, Javid and heaven forbid Patel to challenge his characterisation of the British state. My favourite part, he sent for he sent for some of my least favourite people in politics, Pretty Patel obviously leading the charge. Um, but he's essentially saying, you know, how can this monument celebrate these lives, contribution and legacy, blah de blah de blah of this generation of people and their descendants when the state has a hand in, you know, this prison industrial prison complex whereby black people are disproportionately represented in the prison system, um, overrepresented in the literally poorest and worst parts of society and over, um, sorry, overrepresented and then underrepresented in positions of influence, decision-making and control and power, as he said. Um, and he calls on, you know, those... Um, Tory Tory members who are black and brown, black and Asian, um, and you know, kind of points out the fact that you know they aren't exactly going to challenge this characterization of the British state, um, even though they have come from similar backgrounds as those people um, of the Windrush, um, yeah, men of Windrush descent and generations that have followed. So, essentially, he's calling out just how how little sense it makes, um, and I think. I felt a little bit less crazy when I read what Gus John had to say about it all. Um, and it's been interesting then to see the kind of comments and fallout about it afterwards. In hindsight, like I, the more I think about it, the more I move towards just not even being able to stomach the thought of the celebration. And I think maybe if this had happened before I recorded last week's episode, last week's episode would sound a little bit more like this week's episode. But I guess you're kind of here. If, you're, if you've listened to both week after one week after each other or straight after each other, you're listening to my thoughts develop and transition into kind of further disappointment and outrage. Um, But, you know, we've got to end the rant at some point, and so we're going to end it here. Um, And I thought at this point we will make some announcements um, for the History Hotline podcast. So, first of all, you might have realised this episode came out on a Tuesday because we're going to be moving to Tuesdays. Um... I don't know if this will be a popular choice. Um, I'm sorry for anybody that had it locked into their Monday routine. But um, my personal life routines are changing um, and it makes it makes better sense for me to research over the latter part of the weekdays and the weekend and then record on Mondays and have it out by Tuesdays. Um, so hopefully that will mean every Tuesday when you wake up there's an episode there ready um maybe some of you already listen on a Tuesday it fits into your Tuesday commute or whatever that looks like um but yeah Tuesdays is going to be the new day moving 
forwards. Um, I hope that doesn't cause too many problems. Hope you'll stick with me. Um, as we get into more historical episodes, I feel like we've I'm hitting into rant territory and I don't want to do that. So next week's episode, I make a promise. Uh, maybe I shouldn't promise. No, I'm going to promise. Will be a nice historical story, um, something interesting. Um, and I hope you have a wonderful week until then. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.